So we started a series last week that I'm calling GOAT. And no, we're not talking about goats. I don't have my slide today um, or, or anything because I forgot and got busy. So you just kind of have to follow along. But we're not talking about goats, the animals. We're talking about what that word stands for, greatest of all time. And so I think it's been really cool to look through this because the definition in and of itself of greatest of all time means there can only be one. If you just look at the word, there can't be five greatest of all time because then they wouldn't be the greatest of all time. So in order to understand this word as in there can only be one greatest of all time, I'm here to hopefully dive through in these weeks qualities that point to God being the greatest of all time. That because of who He is, the abilities He has, that He is the greatest of all time because of all these different qualities He has. And I think on top of that, what's amazing about God, especially being the utmost perfect level of what greatest of all time is, is that He's good in all areas of His life. When you talk about greatest of all times, you think of somebody like, say, like Tom Brady. Okay, he's great at football, but is he good at basketball? Probably not. You think of back in the day with Tiger Woods and all the championships he won. He's probably good at golf, but if he played tennis, is he good? No, probably not. And so when we look at somebody like God and we look at the perfection of what greatest of all time is, God is good in all areas of his life. And so we looked last week at this idea of love. And his love is unconditional. His love has no strings attached. He has an utmost love for you. And today, I think especially coming into Easter, the word we want to look at is forgiveness. God is amazing at forgiveness and has a a love to forgive you no matter what. And so as we look into this, it was making me think a little bit about... um, When I was in high school, you know, I chose to do my own things and go down my own path, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to share my whole testimony, but but I remember there was a time when I had a couple bad weeks. I don't remember exactly what happened. I was making dumb decisions, being stupid. And so we had come to church on a Sunday, our whole family sitting in the pew in the sanctuary, and um, we're going through the whole service. You know, we sing, we listen to Dan's message, and at the very end of the message, um, he gave us kind of this time, I don't know if they played a worship song or they played a song, but a kind time to like sing and just kind of pray and be with ourselves. And so I'm sitting there, you know, not really engaged at all because I'm mad at being there in the first place. And I look down the pew and about four people down, my oldest sister, she's about a year and a half older than me, is just crying. And, and I didn't know exactly why she was crying, but I knew it had to relate to what I was choosing to do, the way I was living my life. I didn't And so it just started to make me upset. And it's, you know, I'm sitting there going, okay, number one, and I didn't say these things, make sure I clarify, but I'm thinking in my head, one, why is she crying over my decisions I'm making? Or two, why is she making this big scene and getting so emotional over what I'm doing? So all these things start playing in my mind. I'm getting angry, and my grandma's sitting behind us, And she's watching this whole scene unfold. And so after the service, she comes up to me and she said, hey, you want to get lunch after church? I said, that's fine. So she picks me up. She takes me to lunch. We went to Bob Evans. 
we're sitting across from each other, Bob Evans. She's trying to talk to me, ask me different questions about decisions I'm making in my life. And then she gets to this point where she's like, okay, we're going to approach the subject of what happened in church. And she kind of asks this question, and she says, how do you process, how do you think, I don't remember the exact wording, um, how do you process your sister this morning and what she's dealing with, with the choice that you're making? And I remember looking at my grandma straight in the eyes, stone cold, not, no emotion, and I looked at her and I said, I don't understand why she has to get so upset and angry and cry over the decisions I'm making. And she just looked right back at me. Not a word was said. And I've never really seen my grandma shake and cry. Um, but, but she pretty much finished her meal. She got in the car. She packed me up. And we went home and she dropped me off. And I never, we never said a word after that. And obviously we talked today. But, but I remember thinking after that moment, and even to this day sometimes I still think, could I really be forgiven for saying something like that? Could, could God really forgive me for saying that to my grandma? I mean, there's probably moments in all of our lives where we've made decisions, we've said something, we've navigated life in a wrong way, and you've wondered, could God really forgive me for that choice? I think if we're human, that thought's had to go past our mind. It's had to go through our head because forgiveness is a concept to us that I don't think we totally understand because it's this idea in this relationship that there's this idea of sin that separates us from God and God can give us forgiveness for the decisions we make that go against Him. And so it doesn't totally always connect in our minds. So when we do something against what God's called us to in our lives, we feel like it should just be like here on this earth where either somebody gets mad, disappointed, or turns their back on us. They just decide, well, we're not going to be friends anymore because you decided to talk like that to me. Okay, we, we'll just, we're not friends anymore. And there's no forgiveness. Now, some relationships, there is forgiveness and people will re resolve the conflict. But a lot of times... Conflict tears us apart, and there is no forgiveness. And so as we look at, at God here in a second and His story, I want you to think about, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and, and there's something in your life you've totally not felt like you've gotten forgiveness for. There's a decision maybe you've told nobody about, and you're like, did God really forgive me for that? Did God really pay the price for my sin, and He can wipe my slate clean for saying that to that person, for turning my back on that person, for making that decision in my life. Because I think it's very challenging for us to get the idea out of our head and into our heart. Because there's a lot of us that could probably say, well, yeah, God forgives me, but do you feel forgiven? Do you feel like when you make a decision... God's love and compassion comes around you, and not only you can say, I'm forgiven, but you feel like you're forgiven. God is the greatest of all time because He always forgives. And that's what I want to unpack here. The greatest of all time always forgives. 
Just like his love, there's no stipulations. He doesn't forgive some things, and then some things he says, well, that's just too bad for me, so I can't forgive that. No, 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 There is no stipulation. God forgives all, no matter what the choice or decision is. And I think it's very interesting when you look at a story in 2 Samuel, you'll start to see how God's forgiveness is extended to us all the time. 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm not going to read the whole thing if you want to follow along in there i'll kind of give you the cliff notes of the story a story we've probably all heard before but there was a guy named king david king david was supposed to be one of the greatest kings to ever reign still is he was a man after god's own heart this was a king that everybody loved and so there's probably part of us uh, that if he has the title of a man after god's own heart and he's a king in power that sure he may mess up and make some dumb decisions but he's not just gonna throw his life away I mean he's a king he's got to have this public figure in a sense where he keeps his life together so he can't make that big of mistakes and so there's one day depending on your translation mine says here in verse 2 of chapter 11 late one afternoon David got out of bed after taking a nap and went for a stroll on the roof some may say at night he got up in the middle of the night Whatever it was, at some point during the day, David laid down for a nap. What had happened just before this is he took his entire army and he sent them out to go fight in a battle. He said, all right, you take this army, take them out of here and go fight the battle. And of course, the great king is taking a nap. So he lays down, he takes a nap, and then he gets up and he goes out for a stroll on the roof. And as he's out on the roof, he kind of peers over off in the distance and he sees this gorgeous girl taking a bath. And instead of being the godly man that he probably should have been and the decision he should have made is at that moment, turn around, walk into the house and not worry about it. But instead of turning around, he takes a triple take at this lady and he starts staring and it just starts going through his head. Wow, this girl is incredible. This girl is amazing. She's so beautiful. I have to have her. And so he sends a servant down and he says, go figure out the situation on this lady so that I can know what I need to do. And so he sends the servant and the servant comes back and says, well, she's married. Her husband is Uriah. He fights in the military and they've been together, whatever. I don't know. That doesn't say how long they've been, but say 20 years they've been together. They've been together for 20 years. So David says, okay, here's what we're going to do. He invites her up to his palace and when he invites her up, he somehow, that doesn't give us the details, courses her, gets her to sleep with him. So they sleep together. Um, and then she goes back home and sends word that she's pregnant. So not only now has the king slept with another man's wife, he's also gotten her pregnant. And so now David doesn't know what I'm going to do. I not only slept with another man's wife, I've gotten her pregnant. I've got to figure this out. I'm a king. This can't get out. This could be a scandal. And so he's trying to think up a plan of how he's going to clear himself out of the woods. And so he sends word to the guy in charge of their army that's fighting that Uriah needs to come back home, her husband. He needs to come back home. So he comes back home, and David starts talking to him. And he says, okay, you've been away for a while. You've been fighting really hard. You've been serving our country. Go home and spend time with your wife. His mind is if he goes home, he spends time with his wife, he's probably going to sleep with her because he hasn't seen her in so long. So then they'll think he got her pregnant and they'll th the whole thing will be set in stone and I won't have to worry about it. Well, the twist in the story is Uriah doesn't want to go home. 
not because he doesn't want to see his wife. In his mind, he said, I've got men fighting for their lives out here, defending our country, and you want me to go home and have fun? I'm not going to do that. So he sleeps on the palace steps outside of King David's castle, and he won't go home. And David said, well, i got to do something to get him to go home. And so he says, just stay a couple more nights, and then you can go back and fight. And so uh, on the last night, he gets this big feast together, and he starts feeding them drinks. Just gives them drinks. And, and he gets super drunk, and he says, well, if I get him drunk, then he's going to want to go home, and then he's going to want to spend time with his wife and sleep with her. And so um, he gets him drunk, and he says, go home with your wife. And he says, no. Gives the same answer. My men are out there fighting. I'm not going home. And so he falls asleep again on the steps, and David's going, okay, well, this isn't going to work, so I'm going to have to figure something out. So he sends Uriah back to fight with his country with a note that David wrote that said, put Uriah on the front lines, pull the army back so that he gets killed. This is his solution. This is the magical solution. Instead of just confessing that he did something wrong, let's kill him. And so he takes the message back to the commander. Uriah hands him the message, and the guy does exactly what King David wants. He puts him on the front lines. He pulls the, pulls the rest of the army back. Uriah gets killed, and they send word back that Uriah is dead. And then you pick up here just for a moment at the end of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel. It says, When Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of the wise. So this whole story unfolds. He kills her husband, and then he waits for a period of time. To me, there shows almost this anticipation that he's not even thinking about what this is causing Bathsheba in her heart and the emotion she's feeling. He's just waiting for the moment when it's socially okay to take her as his wife. So he sends, he takes her on as his wife, and then an interesting twist to the story happens. Nathan, his good buddy, comes and tells him a story. And I always hate these stories because it makes me think about when I got in trouble growing up and my dad would tell me a story and I would be like, man, that's terrible. And it would somehow relate back to me. And this is what Nathan does. He says, okay, here we got two guys. We got a rich man. We got a poor man. Poor man's got this lamb, sheep, whatever you want to call it. And it's his best friend. He does everything with this lamb. He lets him eat the scraps off the table. He sleeps with this lamb. He takes him on his walks with him. He takes him everywhere he goes. This lamb is his life. Then you've got the rich man. He's got fields of lambs and he's got all these different animals and he's just living his lavish lifestyle out in, in what he wants to spend his money on. And so one day, the rich man has guests come over, and he says, i got to figure out something to eat. And instead of just going out to all the animals that he has, he goes next door to the poor man's house, whom he knows has the utmost love for this lamb, takes the lamb, kills it, cooks it, and feeds it to his, his guests. Nathan looks at David and says, what do you think should happen here? And David is furious. He's angry. He says not only should he give him back his lamb, but he should pay him back four times for what he took from him. And in the Cliff Note versions, Nathan looks at him and says, that's exactly what you did to Bathsheba. And David is speechless. And I pick up here for the real verse that I really want to just mention 
in verse 13 of chapter 12, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. So if you look at his story, just unpack it just for a quick moment. We have a man that's king, and he's in power. He's in power, and he goes and commits adultery, number one, sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, number two. His solution, instead of just confessing his sins, is let's kill her husband so that she can become my wife, and that'll be my baby. And so he kills her husband, and in a sense, you can say, used his power to coerce this whole thing, because he had the ability to. He could send that guy on the front lines. He could call him out from battle. He could do all these things. So he uses all these different things, decisions, choices, to go against God in the way you're supposed to live. And this is where he's at, probably with all in a month. We're not talking like years. Like you look at a story like this, and I think this might be a story for a lifetime. People make a dumb mistake. You know, they sleep, they commit adultery. Okay, there's an accident. You know, 70... Seven years later, 17 years later, they do something else dumb. You'd think this is a whole lifetime. Probably all happened like within a month. And if I'm stepping back, I'm going, there's no way God can forgive that. I mean, he committed adultery, got her pregnant, not only just stopped there, he killed her husband. He didn't necessarily with his own hands, but he ordered him to be killed. Well, if God is the greatest of all time, then there's nothing too big for Him. There's nothing too bad for Him. There's nothing that He says is off limits. So I think it's very interesting because we step back and we see that, and even Nathan confronts Him and says, this isn't the right thing to do. And we go, there's no way God can, can forgive this. Yet Nathan replies, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. It can be easy for us to look at other people's lives and we see all the dumb decisions they're making and we, we could care less whether God forgives them or not. But if this becomes our story, we're probably sitting in the shoes going, I hope God can forgive me for this. David's broken after he makes these decisions you got to know what's going through his head. Will God forgive me for this? Did what I do was too bad for him to forgive me for? Yet he looks at David with the utmost love. That's why these things kind of connect, looking at love last week. His unconditional, no-strings-attached love for David. He wants to forgive him because he has such a love for him. And David is forgiven. I want to bring this into your neighborhood as we wrap up here. So you see someone like David, and we say, okay, well, if he can be forgiven for murder, for adultery, for using his power in a bad way, then I could probably be forgiven. But you also might be sitting there, and there's something that you've held on to for so long that is just for you could be too difficult to be forgiven for. Maybe you're holding it on to it because it's a part of you now. That's just the choice I made, the decision I made. 
I want you to hopefully look at this story and see all throughout Scripture, God forgives. You look in John chapter 8, it's another passage we've talked about before, and they bring this woman into the center of all these people as Jesus is teaching, caught in the act of adultery, and the Pharisees want her stoned. Jesus sits down to doodle a little bit, and they keep pressing him, what should we do? Should we stone her? And Jesus gets up, looks at them straight in the eyes, and says, if you have no sin, you throw the first stone. And one by one, they drop their stones, and they walk out. And Jesus looks at the girl caught in the act of adultery, and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, I don't know. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. She's forgiven for what she's chosen. In Acts chapter 7, I think it is, Stephen is doing a bunch of different work for God in the kingdom, and they stone him for doing good things for God. And as he's dying, his last and final breaths, he says this. He says in in Acts chapter 7, As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. God, forgive them. They're making a dumb decision, but forgive them. Don't hold this against them. Even... God, Jesus himself, hanging from a cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It's a pattern all throughout Scripture. God forgives. It's not just David. He forgives David. He forgives the woman caught in adultery. Stephen pleads for forgiveness for the people choosing to stone him. Jesus is pleading for the forgiveness of the people that crucify him, and he's pleading for you to be forgiven too. Your sin is not too much for our Father to forgive. Your decision you made that you felt like you couldn't be forgiven for is not big enough for, or too big for our God to forgive. And that thought you had that you feel like is way too bad for you and God can never forgive is not too small for our God either. Our God extends forgiveness in each and every situation because He has a love for you and He wants to see you be brought to restoration and whole. So whatever you might be struggling with, wrapping your head around this forgiveness, know that our Father will forgive you for everything. Not just the things you want forgiven, but every aspect where you've gone against God, God will forgive. Confess your sins, it says, and God is faithful and just to forgive them. God wants you forgiven. It's like I imagine as a whiteboard, it's like you could have all of your sins up here, but when you're forgiven, they're wiped clean. I think a lot of times we get in our head that God just like forgets it, but we, he still kind of knows we did it. No, 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 no. When you ask for forgiveness, it's clean. It's not there anymore. It's gone. The goat always forgives. I hope you can look at a story like David. I hope in your own life you can see the transition, not only from your head of I am forgiven, but you feel it in your heart that he has wiped your slate clean. And I close with this story. There was a guy in South Africa, and his name is Desmond Tutu. He actually just died. I saw 
um, when I was looking him up in December of 2021, so just a few months ago. And what this guy was charged to do is create this Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa. That was what his task was. And so you say, well, why would he need to create this commission? So in this time in South Africa, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but you can look it up. There was this social policy regime, however you want to say it, that was passed in South Africa called the Apartheid. And what this was passed is that they were given special privileges to white people and violence and even death was allowed to be used against black people if they didn't cooperate with the law that was passed. And so it gave the police the authority to kill black people if they needed to because they gave the special privileges to the white people and if they didn't comply, then kill. So there was all these nasty things that happened through this regime and if you want to read his book where he talks a lot about these um, trials and, and the, the stories they shared. It's called No Future Without Forgiveness. Um, and so there was one girl that came to the stand in the middle of this. And they're sharing all their things that, that the police had done or other people had done in power um, to this Truth and Reconciliation Committee because their hope was that this Truth and Reconciliation Committee would pull the truth from what really happened and bring reconciliation to everybody and get rid of this whole social policy and all that stuff. And so this lady comes to the stand and she starts sharing her story. She's, she said she was in the house one day and her sister's in the living room, their TV's on, and on the TV they see this car on fire, flames coming out of the window, and she yells for her sister to get in there. Her sister comes rushing in, looks at the TV, and realizes that this looks a little familiar, and it's her father's car. So she runs down to the spot where her father's car is at, and her father's not there. He's dead. They had killed him, and so she goes to the police to figure out, okay, what happened? How did he die? All these different things. When she looks at the report, I don't remember all the exact things, but I know some of the things they saw were 25 stab wounds to his chest, his right hand was cut off. Acid was poured all over him. He was burned in some spots on his body. He was totally mutilated, her father. And as she's telling this story and, and she's barely getting through it, she has to take a moment as she's processing all this. And just after she takes this moment, she lifts her head up. She looks at the commission. And she says these words. I want to forgive, but I don't know who to forgive. I mean, can you imagine? This isn't, they killed my dog. They, they burnt down my house. They killed her father. And she stands up and says, I want to forgive whoever killed my father, but I don't know who did, so I don't know who to forgive. I feel like that woman is just like our father. I want to forgive. I want to forgive you for what you chose to do. I want to forgive you for those decisions you're making. I want to forgive you. You have a father that always forgives you no matter what. Rest in the fact that he's the greatest of all time because he always forgives.